TED Audio Collective. This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in June of 2022. It's again, it's like learning to trust myself in a way that I had never imagined I'd have to. So, oh, jo- Joan, just read the music and right. you'll be fine. Uh, and then all of a sudden you take that music away and you're left with, who am I? From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Joan Wasser, a.k.a. Joan S. Policewoman, talks about how she went from violinist to singer. I didn't have control over it. I had to sing. It was how I, I helped myself stay alive. Truth be told, though, Eddie Murphy in Dreamgirls, being serious, it's almost like the video for How Can It Be? where you're just kind of waiting for him to crack a joke and then he doesn't. You're waiting for the host of this week's Saturday Night Live to come walking in to tell you that it's just a skit. Or at some point, everyone breaks scene and looks at the camera and says, live Live from from New York, York. it's Saturday night. The Michelle Mission, two men, one podcast, every black film ever made. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever good podcasts be. Joan Wasser began as a violinist, a classically trained violinist. But in her 20s, she came to New York and started playing as a session musician in many musical genres. She also learned guitar and started singing in various bands. By 2002, she took on the performing moniker Joan as Policewoman. Ever since, she's been touring, making albums, and collaborating with musicians and performers, including Rufus Wainwright, Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed, and many more. She's here to talk about her most recent album and the road she's taken to get here. Joan Wasser, welcome to Design Matters. Hello, so good to be here. Oh, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Me too. Joan, I understand you spent your childhood convinced you were going to follow the cursed footsteps of your namesake, Joan of Arc, and die by fire. Why did you think that? Um, Probably just because I'm dramatic. (laughs) I mean... um, there were not very many other people my age named Joan, so I figured if I had that name, uh, there was a reason, and it might mean that I'd make it. I mean, it was probably some sort of romantic notion of not making it into my 20s. Like, of course, I would just die by 19 or whatever. Uh, well, she died when she was 17. Oh, so 17. when you were 17, did you stop worrying? I did. I I did. I, I was a little bit like, darn. <laughs> it would have been such a good way to go out. Oh, my God. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> then you wouldn't have done what you're doing. My God. No, Whoa. no, no. I don't like that. I don't like that thread. <laughs> okay. It you, didn't happen, so. Absolutely. <laughs> you were born in Maine to an unmarried teenage girl who hid her pregnancy from her family until she was in her eighth month, then were put up for adoption when you were three weeks old. 
The couple that adopted you, your parents, first met in a community chorus when they were 31 and 35. Is it true that they were each other's one and only first love? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So they met in a choir, but had never been previously in love by the time they were in their 30s. So they were just waiting for each other. It seemed so, yeah. I mean, my father was very, very introverted. My mom was, too, in a very different way. She was, you know, she was a Latin and French teacher. There, she was, oh, what's the word? She, her parents, she feels like the ultimate Puritan, actually Puritan. Like, non-religious, but very moral. Yeah. They adopted your brother Daniel a bit over a year later, and they explained to you that you were both adopted before you even understood what it meant uh, so that you wouldn't feel like you were weird or different. And you've said that growing up in a family where there are no blood ties creates a certain way of experiencing the world. And I'm wondering if you can share in what way. It really solidified the idea that family is who you are with. And family are the people that take care of you and that you take care of and that you share love with. I don't think anyone realizes how much stress there is on the idea of being related to the rest of your family while growing up. Oh, you look so much like your mom. You get this from your father, la, la. And my brother and I not only didn't look like each other, neither of us looked like our parents, people would try to tell Dan and I that we weren't each other's sibling. And I just came out pretty uh, gregarious and social. My brother is the opposite. So I would just be saying, no, that's my brother. End of story. So growing up in that way definitely gave me the feeling that it, it really was it, 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 the ultimate chosen family. They chose to pick us up from the adoption agency. They couldn't have kids. They were like, they told the agency, we'll take your first two. And they were uninterested in whatever race or gender. They were completely open to whoever the children that were brought there would be. Yeah, that was very much their idea about what life was. Both of them very unique, in my opinion, in that way. I think a lot of people feel like they'd like to be that way, but they really were that way. I mean, my mom joked like she was surprised that they got a white girl. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting the way we sort of construct the ties. I remember growing up and for whatever reason, I'm almost visually a clone of my mother. <laughs> yeah. And I show people pictures of me growing up next to my mother, and they think that my mother is me. Mm. Like, wow, oh, my God, you look exactly like your mother. And when I was a little girl, I resented that. Sure. I didn't want to look like her because I wanted to be my own person. And I remember having a tantrum once in my grandmother's house. My grandmother had one of those typical family photo walls. And she had a picture of my mother as a little girl mm -hmm. at the age I was then and a slightly less recent picture of me. 
And I insisted that the picture of my mother was me. Mm. And they were like, no, that's your mother. And I'm like, no, that's me because Mm. I didn't want to look like her. Mm. Um, Mm -mm. And it's so (laughs) interesting, you know, how we how we construct our identities and our needs to be witness to our origins somehow. I don't I don't I don't know if I'm making any sense, but but I think there's something kind of fascinating about who we want to and don't want to look like and why. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I remember my mother being very annoyed at other mothers in the supermarket commenting, oh, you got such a cute Chinese girl. I looked very Asian when I was young because my eyes sort of do that thing. That, that sometimes happens with Well, they're just Asian. very almond-shaped. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, she was just so annoyed that there was any comments at all. Like, it was just like... Yeah. I mean, whose business is it? Exactly. You ultimately did meet your birth parents when you were older and said that they were both incredible people with families of their own. You became good friends. You found out that your biological mother also played music and your biological father had been an electric bass player. He dropped out of school to tour locally with his band. Um, What was that like for you to see that sort of continuation of genetics? Yeah. So to start with, my mother and I did not share a lot of personality traits. It was at times very difficult growing up for both of us to reconcile that those differences. I was sort of the perfect child until 11 when I began to exert behavior that she felt was inappropriate. It was all about just school. It was just only school. And I was very social. So when I met my mom uh, first, when I was 20, it was, (laughs) well, well, first of all, when I found her, I, she sent a letter actually to my parents' house. And my mom said, you sent a letter here? I was like, what are you talking about? And it was from my biological mom, Cindy. We have the same handwriting. Like crazy stuff like that that you don't know is necessarily genetic. And we also do all the same things with our gestural stuff is the same. You know, so you don't realize that that is like, that's just passed through your DNA, you know. Um, But... I am a product of my biological parents. You can see it in both of them. Like, I have traits from both of them. And I am very grateful that I got to grow up not seeing them. I mean, I had no choice. But it was, like, really fun then being an adult and sort of finding out who I was in a certain way through them. Because I always just had to create a composite of who I was. Like, okay, these things. And I, I, I don't think I ever thought, like, oh, my my mother's going to have these things of mine or whatever. Because who knows? Maybe she would have been, a, you know, someone even less like my, the mom I grew up with. Right. You know. Um, so to find out that actually they, they were very similar 
to me in personality and body type, walking, you know, all the just like the crazy things. And yes, they both played music. My biological mom would not have played music if she if she had the choice. Her mom made all of her, she had four older sisters, play either the piano or the violin. So she said, I, I, I don't care, but she was a visual artist. My f- biological father, on the other hand, did play electric bass and dropped out of school for a while to tour with, like, I think he was 13 when he dropped out of school. This is in rural Maine, so it was, yeah, different vibe. You grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, and while your parents really loved music and were in the choir, they didn't believe in pushing you to do anything if you didn't want to do it. Nevertheless, you took a liking to the violin when you were in the third grade and rented one from your school for $10 a year. Why the violin? Well, this was public school in the yeah. 70s, so that's what was provided for. You know, if you didn't have money, anyone could rent an instrument for $10 a year. So there was no reason why you wouldn't play. They came to the auditorium and did a presentation of, here's the, what the violin sounds like and the viola. And I was like, I want the most portable one. <laughs> the one you can carry around. Pretty much. That's yep. what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Your family also had an upright piano yes. and your parents would play and sing old American songs. Yep. And I believe you still have that piano yeah, in, my in, house. in your home and have written almost everything you've ever written on that piano. That's right. Um, I believe you started taking piano lessons at six, even before taking up the violin. You also now play the guitar and the bass. Do you prefer one instrument over another? Well, first of all, the piano lessons were about maybe two or three piano lessons. It was like I was not feeling the piano. So (laughs) I didn't really take piano lessons. Okay. What's really fun for me is that because I studied in school the violin and really know my way around that instrument, learning other instruments that I don't know my way around, it makes writing on them really fun. Because I'm not set up knowing, oh, this is what's supposed to come next. There's no previous—I took no lessons uh, of of those instruments. So it's, like, really like I'm, like, just traipsing around the mountain range looking for the most beautiful— vantage point or flowers or whatever on every instrument. That's what it feels like. Uh, That's sort of how Joni Mitchell learned how to play the guitar, which is Mm. why she has those, you know, crazy unusual tunings. Yeah. By the time you were 13 years old, I believe that Mahler's Second Resurrection Symphony was one of your favorite things to play. Really? Well, this is what happened. There was an all-state orchestra where they pull. I know. I know you were in all-state. I have to talk to you about that. I was an all-state chorus. Oh, of course you were. (laughs) Um, Where they pull from the state of the so-called best musicians. So the conductor, he decided that he was going to teach us that first movement of Mahler II, and it was the greatest choice because that music is perfect for adolescence, for 
just raging hormones <laughs> and high drama is what it is. I was thinking it was very apocalypse now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it starts with those cellos. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, I love it. But, you know, he really empowered us to believe that we could play this very advanced music. And, you know, we're between 13 and 17. We had all played a certain amount of music, but in general, it was pretty light. And all of a sudden, he's saying, we can make this thing happen together. That idea of all of us working really hard together, he taught us to breathe together paying attention to each other more than paying attention to even him. It was the greatest lesson and experience of my life, really, up until then. I had been so moved by so much music on the radio, and I would buy so much vinyl at the Goodwill, 25 cents a pop, you know, and had heard all this music and stuff. But to be in the auditorium creating this with these other people and this guy with this crazy kind of Beethoven-ish hair saying, you have what this piece needs to make it really sing and really come alive. And we felt that coming alive together as a group. And it really, it you know, I, I talk about this being the moment I felt I knew what people we're talking about when they said God. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That sort of bigger than yourself, bigger than the universe feeling. You said that your conductor empowered the orchestra to take music seriously in a way that you didn't think any of you had ever considered. How did he do that? Well, he first of all told us that we all had to make a pact with each other to be dedicated to creating this together. So if if one person was distracted by, I don't know. Their iPhone? <laughs> not then. No, I know. I'm teasing. Oh, I know. Um, I know. I don't even know what we were distracted by then because it seems like there's nothing more distracting than what we have now. But hormones. Yeah, just distracted by anything else, passing notes, yeah, anything, um, that, it, you know, it, the music would lose its power. So it was, it was kind of like we must trust. There was a trust uh, that he told us we needed to have amongst people that didn't know each other, which is really important to me in general. But so much the breathing before you play, everyone around around you, if you're, in, you know, if all the violins enter at the same time, then you hit it together. And that is, I mean, that is such a profound experience. I had never breathed with anyone else. Yoga was not popular then. There was no breathing techniques. Nothing, none of that was happening. So... To have someone tell me that, uh, you know, that this would this would work if I breathed with the person next to me was really huge. I mean, that's what we've got, the most basic stuff, the, you know, 
like it happens without our permission, but we have control over that. And that we, ha- we, we could decide to take ourselves seriously. That's that's kind of amazing to get, sort of be given that permission yes. to take this artistic pursuit more seriously than you'd ever considered before. That's right. It was. You went to Boston University College of Fine Arts at 18 and studied music under Yuri Mazurkiewicz. And you also played with the Boston University Symphony Orchestra. But I understand you also studied anthropology, which you liked very much. Was that something that you ever seriously considered doing? Was it like a safety backup? Did you at that point feel that you wanted to pursue music professionally? Yeah, I chose that school because I could take anthropology as a minor or whatever. I never considered doing anything besides music. I just loved anthropology. So I wanted to be at a place where I could also study that. Also, my teacher, he studied with David Oistrakh, a major solo violinist, and I wanted to study with one of his students because I felt like that was what I lacked in my musicality, like the sort of Russian tradition, incredibly graceful. Mm -hmm. And I did not feel graceful. I knew I had passion. I knew I had conviction, but I, I, I wanted to learn what that was, like the gracefulness. It's funny even saying like that I was like thinking that way then, but I, I, I really wanted to study with him because of that. And he was really, yeah, he was really special teacher. He really helped me a lot. By the time you were 20, you joined the Dam Builders, but as their electric violinist, the music you were making was decidedly non-classical, was punk rock. Talk about that trajectory or that migration from classical violinist to punk violinist. So through high school, I had a blonde mohawk. I was like very, you know... I I loved music so much. It was my life. I went to so many shows, small and big. I lived near New York City, so I would take the train in and see Susie and the Banshees and Echo and the Bunnymen on the piers before they were the piers that are now, you know. So I I knew that the classical music world, I would find a couple of people that sort of were like-minded, and a lot of them were not so like-minded. It didn't mean that I would, wouldn't get along with him, but I remember at orientation looking around and thinking, oh boy, like, where's my person here? And then I saw her from across the room. She had a babushka on and red lipstick, and I was like, there's my person. I went over to her and I said, what's up? You know, uh, she said, my name's Mary. She was from D.C. We're really good friends still. Wow. She was there to study classical violin, and she had been playing in bands for a long time because she was a guitar player. So really quickly, she said, "You let's play together. She was living in a terrible dorm, so I got her over in my dorm, and then... She was just like, Let, let's make music. I had really very rarely not played off a page. As a classical musician, you're, you're taught to read music and play what's on the page. And yes, you can bring yourself into that, but 
jazz musicians are taught to improvise. Classical musicians are not. Right. Which is crazy, but whatever. This is how the, the education's been, or the separateness of genre, which is, thank God, becoming antiquated, which is really fun for me, personally. <laughs> um so I had, like, jammed along with Hendrix and, like, the Cocteau Twins. That was it. That's pretty amazing, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was the music that felt—I mean, the Cocteau Twins, you can imagine, right? It's yeah. so ambient, spacey. Layered There's, like, and, yeah. yeah. Um, Hendrix I just loved so much, and I felt like I could— I just wanted to learn his solos, so those were the two ends. But she empowered me to play what I heard, which was so scary. It's so funny to think about now, because this is all I do now when I'm writing, when I'm writing. But it's, again, it's like learning to trust myself in a way that I had never imagined I'd have to. So, oh, Joan, just read the music and you'll be fine. Uh, and then all of a sudden you take that music away and you're left with, who am I? What um, do I want to express? Yes. How do I want to express it? Interesting that you were so attracted to Mahler, given how dramatic it is, despite it being classical. It's sort of a, like, I think you had referred to it as the, the Led Zeppelin of its time. <laughs> Absolutely. I do think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. So so we played together, but she was my in in terms of playing non-classical music. Then when I got going with that, I was living in Boston, so there was all these opportunities. Berklee School of Music needed violin players to learn to record them, like the the recording engineers that were, you know, um, oh, we need, this reggae band needs, um, you know, some strings laid down on this one track, you know, like... That was a time when there were just bulletin boards up at music schools, like, this needed for this, I'll trade you for this, you know, whatever. So I just started taking advantage of the place that I was living in, which was just full of students and full of music students of all different kinds. So that was really fun. That that was like my first year of being at school. Uh, I just started taking advantage of the fact that I could do all these different kinds of music, and I was pretty fearless about it once I caught the wave or something. It's just like, oh, whatever. I don't—if I don't know how to do this, I'll figure it out, or I'll be crappy, and that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned your white mohawk. Uh -uh. And I remember reading in my research that— your mother didn't mind you having a white mohawk. She was worried that people would think less of you or not take you as seriously as a musician with the white mohawk. Is that true? Yeah. She is really funny because my person really sent her into conflict in in herself in so many ways. I really was just like, ugh. Um, really challenged her. I didn't mean it, but it's what happened. So the idea was any way you look is okay. That's what she wanted to think. That's what she felt was right. But on the other side, 
she worried that I would be judged by others. To me, that meant, Mom, you're judging people. Right. Actually, it's you. But I I, I also understand, you know, she wanted me to have all the opportunities that she thought I could have if people saw who I was. Right. But they were seeing who you were, just not who she thought you were. Yeah. Some people were and absolutely some people were not. Right. You know, some people did not want someone with like blonde, short, crazy hair very obviously placed in their orchestra. So some people did. Like I always wore pants, you know, and some conductors loved that. And some conductors thought that was really just inappropriate. So, I mean, I attracted the people that liked difference, but my mom was really challenged by it. You started touring with the Dam Builders and even left school for a bit to go on the road. Uh, You played at Lollapalooza and the band got signed to Elektra in 1994 by by Sylvia Rohn, the great industry powerhouse. What was that time like for you then? So the guitar player in the band, Eric Masanaga, he owned... This amazing, I'm going to get like silly technical. So he owned a two inch um, 16 track old Studer machine. So I was recording early on on these like beautiful, this old, beautiful machine that they used to record the most amazing records of, you know, until then. So this was before Pro Tools, Logic, any of that. We started just doing a lot of recording and there were all these like singles only labels. It was so DIY. And then we got signed like a lot of arty Bands got signed in the 90s because the music industry was flush. Yeah. There was all this money just getting put into supporting music that wasn't necessarily obvious. Uh, And what was cool is, like, we got to take advantage of that. I mean, we made a number of records on an actual major label budget, kept a little bit of money on the side to live off of while we were on tour, had tour support. I mean, it's like unheard of now. All of this. Yeah. Unless you're, I don't even know who it is, (laughs) Beyonce. Unless you're Beyonce, you don't get that anymore. Yeah. It was really fun. You said this about the experience. Just being around men all the time, I had such a tough guy problem. And the band even had as a single from 1994 with the same title. And you stated, the route I took was, I can drink you under the table. I can carry that bass cabinet by myself. No, I'm not someone's girlfriend in the band. Thank you and fuck off. (laughs) That's absolutely right. Did you encounter (laughs) a lot of shock from people being in such a sort of all boys except you punk band? Yeah, I mean, it was mostly men doing everything. And it was really boring, that part of it, that every time I entered a club, most likely I was going to get confused as a girlfriend. Yeah, I did sort of, I can outmail you, you know? Yeah. Which is the only way I knew how to react. Also, I was very angry anyway. It's like I didn't have to push that. I was, like, definitely angrier than all the boys in the band, you know? So <laughs> so it's, it's not like that was, like, a stretch at all. 
Joan, in 1994, the musician Jeff Buckley shared a bill with the Dam Builders. And this was about a month before his debut album, Grace, came out. The two of you fell in love. Was it love at first sight? Uh, it's so silly, but it it was really like mutual what are you? Hmm. I don't even know what love at first sight means because definitely it was very romantic. Later that night after that show, we all went to a like a late night eatery place. And this is in Iowa City. Hmm. And there's a lot of like sort of jockey guys around. And I had this crazy, humongous hair, big black hair with a big white streak in the front, very cartoon character, very 90s. Uh, And these guys were kind of making fun of me, which, whatever, I was so used to that. And Jeff, who was a very slight person, he was little, he went right up to them and said, you wouldn't know a woman if she smacked you in the face. And I was like, okay, I love you. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I, but, of course, I was also annoyed that, like, this person thought that they had to defend me. I was like, I oh. can defend myself. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Now I would have been like, oh, <laughs> I don't care right. about that. But then it was I, – I literally was like, I will – crush you if you fuck with me. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. I'm still like that. (laughs) Yes. It was kind of scary. Yeah. When did you realize that you were going to be a couple? I mean, I think we both thought it that night. Again, it's then it's pay phones. Right. Of course. Pay phones. Yeah, there weren't even faxes at that time. No. Yeah, and we were both touring, you know, so... We didn't know where each other were on the road. I mean, it was crazy, but, you know, yeah. It also sounds terribly romantic. It was terribly romantic. Yeah. We had both been told about each other before that uh, So you were sort of waiting for each other, too. Well, my friend said, Joan, I met this guy named Jeff Buckley, and I was like, hold on, that's a fake name. And he was like, actually, I don't think it is. I think it's actually his given name. And and I was like, I don't believe it. Well, you guys are supposed to be together. And I was like, I total eyeball roll. And I was like, okay, right. And then I saw his name on the tour book that we carried around. And I was like, is that that guy that Nathan told me about? And I was like, meh. Um, and then it was. What did you think of his music when you first heard it? So, I I mean, I heard it for the first time then because there was no—nothing was released, or if it was, I had never heard it. Maybe an EP was released, but it um, was—actually, he gave—well, I forgot that. He gave me the EP that night. I'm not even sure that was released yet. Anyway. He wanted to impress you. Oh, yes. Oh. (laughs) He stared at me the entire time he did a show. Well, that's not surprising, Joan. I'm staring at you the entire time now. Wait, but I'm staring at you too. It was it was very much he we hit it off. Yeah. And his music, I mean, I was both unbelievably impressed. He was um an extraordinary guitar player. I don't know if I mean, all he did was practice guitar his whole life, 
people know him as like a heartthrob. He was an absolute nerd in high school. Like he was not Jeff Buckley in high school. Right. He was practicing. Right. I, I was really impressed, and then I was I was also just like, man, what a just a crooner. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. the voice. Yeah. You were there as Grace was launched and now is considered one of the greatest albums of all time. What do you think of that now, looking back on the release of the music then, how it's become so mythologized? Well, it was not a success right. then. And, I mean, of course, people knew about it and people loved it and it got a lot of great reviews and some not. It was very different than anything else coming out, like a a refined voice and like a very like subtle string arrangement or something. That is not what people were going for at that time. So he was really out of style in a certain way. Also, he was so young. He was young in age, but he was very, very young to be a person that was uh, someone that was just like practicing in his room and with his other in, in with his bands in L.A. and stuff. And then all of a sudden his label, you know, really pushed him as this is an incredible talent. And also look at how beautiful he is. He was horrified by that. Yeah. He was horrified. So I remember when People magazine chose him as part of their 50 most beautiful or whatever. 50 most beautiful people in the world. I've never seen him more just appalled. We went around to every newsstand within like a five block radius of his apartment. He lived in the East Village and he bought every single one so that no one would see it. Did you write and play music together? We did a lot in his apartment. After three years together, you were engaged. On May 29th, 1997, Jeff was in Memphis recording his follow-up to Grace, and he went for a spontaneous swim in the Mississippi River. He got caught in the wake of a tugboat and accidentally drowned. How did you manage yeah, I didn't really. <laughs> um, I'm sorry if this is difficult and you no, don't want to talk okay. about it. No, it's okay. It's all right. I'm I'm thinking about it all the time anyway. Yes. And the thing is, is like the 25-year anniversary of this happening is coming up yes. in a couple of days. So how did I manage? Yeah, it's a good question because... I wasn't super close with my parents at that point. He was my best friend. Yeah. He was not only, like, my boyfriend, et cetera, but, like, he was my best friend. So I lost the person that I would go to if something like this happened. He was an incredibly private person. So I had learned, and I really liked that we had an incredibly private life. You know, um, especially around like him getting more and more attention. It was we became more and more just private, which was great. But I was real. I was lost. I mean, this event so radically changed the trajectory of my life. 
and threw me into, I mean, it just feels like it just threw me into a volcano and it's like, figure it out. Yep. I mean, I can say 25 years later that I, I mean, I'll never stop figuring it out, but it was really touch and go at times and I have successfully stayed alive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which like feels like literally like, wow. No, that's a gift for all of us, Joan. It is. I mean, grief is such a complicated and terrifying experience to carry with you because it takes a long time to metabolize, if, if at all. I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose a lover, somebody who was sort of embedded in your blood in that way. How do you integrate that kind of grief into life? Is it something that you can think about without pain ever? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. I remember at the time, I don't remember who it was, but an adult I didn't feel like an adult. I was 26. I felt like you weren't an adult. No. (laughs) My cerebral cortex was just finished. Absolutely. (laughs) I I, I think I was an amoeba until I was about 30. Yeah. So, but I remember a caring adult saying, you will never get over this. And it was so helpful because... There was no way I thought that I would get over it. And other people were like, oh, he'll he'll be with you inside you forever. You know, all these things. (laughs) Um, Do you want to stab those people? (laughs) Well, they're doing the best they they can. You're being more generous than I am. Well, (laughs) I know, but like nobody knows. We're not taught how to deal with it. So, I mean, that could have helped someone else. It didn't help me because it didn't ring true. So when this person said, you'll never it will change but you'll never ever get rid of it you'll never get over it you will never not feel the grief otherwise that was such a gift because that is I felt like someone was being honest with me and I needed that so bad then and I did drugs that like helped me get through that time drugs saved my life They, of course, become a problem. But at that moment, I wouldn't have survived. Yeah. At one point, without any drugs, I remember becoming coherent of the fact that I was in in the middle of an intersection. I didn't know how I got there. Mm. You know, when you have that amount of grief, your body takes over and says, you can't handle this. You actually can't handle it. Do what you have to do to make it through. And that could mean your life ends. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a terrible, terrible. I was left by my spouse in 1998, very unexpectedly, 24 hours. I, I always described it as an earthquake, just like an earthquake came into my life and then everything was crushed. And I remember, like, weeping to my therapist at the time, how long is it going to take for me to get over this? Because I couldn't comprehend the level of grief that I was feeling. And she said it would be about two years before I could sort of manage. (laughs) And I was so upset and could not comprehend what that meant for my life. P.S. It ended up taking five years. I think five years is always the thing that when 
five years is the place where you're like, oh, now I can start thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of self-destructive behavior that I went through at that time from 1998 to 2003, really into 2004 if I need to be, maybe even to 2005. So it, it petered out, but it was not good. And I really could have fucked my life up. I really got lucky in that regard. I'm glad that you're here, too. Yeah. The Dam Builders disbanded in October of 97, and later that year you formed the band Black Beetle with members of Jeff's band. And you've said that the motivation behind doing this was medicating your sadness. But the experience also motivated you to begin singing and writing your own songs. What was the sort of entry point into doing that? Again, I had more pain than I knew what to do with, and playing the violin was not covering it in any way. I couldn't have any longer an instrument between my heart and the world. I, I never wanted to sing. That was way too revealing. I had no interest like any singing, any opening of my mouth that I did in the dam builders was screaming and yelling, literally. So all of a sudden, it was, I, I didn't have control over it. I, I just, I had to sing. It, it was how I, I helped myself stay alive. You also joined the band Those Bastard Souls and recorded an album titled Debt and Departure with Dave Shouse. This is also when you began working as a session musician, and you played violin across a range of genres, as we've mentioned before, including Haitian, pop, R&B. You played with John Cale. You played with Lou Reed. What was it like to begin to collaborate with these folks who you had sort of grown up with listening to their music? It was pretty trippy. Yeah, <laughs> I saw really. A picture of you and Lou Reed, like he's talking to someone, and you're like talking to someone, and you're all like clearly in the same little club. And I was like, wow, that must have felt amazing. Yeah, it was really, it was scary. I was, I was like really afraid to be around these people, and I had that that thing of like, I'm not supposed to be here, imposter syndrome, like you know. But clearly, I was because I kept getting called, kept being trusted to do this work, which was, I mean, it was really helpful. That was helpful. You know, all of the music that happened, the music has always just saved me. But like, especially then, and all of those sort of mind-blowing experiences with other artists helped me feel like life was worth living and staying alive for. Yeah. Yeah. In 1999, you joined the band formerly known as Antony and the Johnsons, uh, now Anoni's Ensemble, uh, and recorded the album I Am a Bird Now. You've said that working with Anoni saved you. How did she do that? So up until that time, all the music I made was pretty loud. Joining Anoni's band... It was the opposite. Everything was quiet. She wanted everything quieter. Make it sound like a snowflake hitting the water. You know, just like <laughs> analogy after analogy, just like of like quieter. And then on top of it, 
her voice sounds like someone crying. Yeah. So having that at that moment, this quiet music with someone crying so beautifully over it, it was the soundtrack of my insides and made me feel like I wasn't crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, someone else feels like this. Yeah. Also, the ensemble that she put together was a really, really special group of people, a a family that was life-changing. Yes. You you also began touring with Rufus Wainwright for his Want One and Want Two albums. And I read that your second gig with Rufus was at the Beacon Theater in New York. And you've said that it was the most terrifying moments in your life. I knew that you'd seen Nina Simone there and Leonard Cohen there. Um, you don't even remember it now, I think, because you were so terrified. What was so scary for you being there? Well, I was opening. I was supporting him. So I was opening solo my own music. So that was the first time at the Beacon Theater for him, with him. So, yeah, I joined his band in 2004, and I toured with him for almost two years on those records that are just masterpieces. Masterpieces. Well, yeah. He is a genius. Yeah, he is genius. an yep. absolute genius. Yep. Absolutely. And so there was another woman. We were alternating opening gigs. So... One night she would open, one night I would open. So she opened the first show, wherever that was. I have no memory of what that was because it didn't matter. The second gig that we played, I was doing my first support slot with Rufus at the Beacon Theater. I mean... (laughs) Talk about big time. (laughs) I remember absolutely what I wore, and I remember doing my hair so well It was so overwhelming, and because of the history and because of the fact that I was on stage by myself playing these songs that I had pretty recently written, it was impossible for me to to digest, really. So did Rufus come to you and say, Joan, it's time, you need to be on your own, you need to be performing, or did you just, did it happen organically? How did that happen? I mean, he needed someone who could sing, play violin, and play guitar. At that time, there were not that many people in New York City that actually could do all those things. So I auditioned for him, and I got hired, and I had just completed my EP. Actually, I rushed to complete it to leave for tour in, in, in February. I manufactured them myself, and I sold them at the shows for probably $5. He didn't care about me opening. He was like, I, I need a violin player that can sing and play acoustic and electric. You know, and so <laughs> he, you know, I got hired, and then it was like I, I, you know, I was opening the show. So it just was coincidental. Yeah. You talked about the process of learning to sing, and I read that you were. Re- it was really hard for you. You were really, you know, feeling very vulnerable about singing. At the time, you were yearning to sing like Sam Cooke. You felt that he has the most remarkable sound you ever heard. And I read that you yearned to sing without embellishment, that you felt that any melisma you found yourself doing 
was merely a way to cover up some deficiency in your voice. What did you think was deficient about your voice? And so this is a three-part question. What did you think was deficient about your voice? How did you ultimately find your voice, which is so soulful and sexy and stunning? And that's my feeling, my feeling about it. What do you think about it now? I'm so glad. Okay. Trying to figure out who I was as a singer was a very complicated path because of the fact that I felt I had been surrounded by the greatest singers of my time. Jeff Anoni Rufus. What do I have to give? (laughs) Who wants to listen to me? And so I wanted to figure out what my voice sounded like when I wasn't trying to mimic someone else. I could just sing it totally straight and you'd You'd feel it. Yeah. How can I take off all the frosting and all the stuff and just give you the cake? Just the plain thing. How can I do it as plain as possible? Because I felt like that would be the most potent. So you had your EP. You're touring with Rufus. You decide you want to stop drinking. At the same time, you are recording real life, your first full-length album. Your engineer accidentally loses, I think it was the bass and the drums? No. The bass and the drums remained. At the voice. All, everything I did, all my whirlits are playing, all my strings, all my guitar playing, all my singing, all of Anoni's vocals, actually, as well. Everything besides the bass and drums is lost. Was lost. But what was incredible is that I had really, most of the record was done uh, when that happened. But it happened just right after I I got sober. Yeah. I and mean, talk about. It's so. <laughs> serendipity, it's I so think. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful because I remember how horrified. I'm still really close with the engineer. I made this last record that I made with him. He's like one of my close friends. But I remember the, the producer saying, Joan, I have something to tell you. And I, I, I could tell it was something bad. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Bryce, what? And he said, um, for some reason, your none of your stuff was backed up and the hard drive crashed and we've done all of the data recovery and it's nothing's there. And I remember ha- having this feeling like, okay, that's all right. Just feeling like, because I just gotten sober. Everything was felt so, I, I had the new drug of clarity where I was like not hungover anymore. And I was just like, okay. Wow. So then I had to record the whole thing again. Do you think that there was a, a, a really big difference in the tones of the first recording versus the second? I have no idea. I oh, don't, you don't have any know. record. Right. I don't have a record, but what I know is that I was a person that was no longer killing herself slowly with substances. I was no longer that person. It was like I got reborn and then was given the opportunity to make my first record again. Right. What? A, wow. I know. It was really such a gift. <laughs> it really was. You released your EP, 
Jonah's Policewoman in 2004, which was a name that is an homage to the 1974 television cop show starring Angie Dickinson. Now, I know I'm 10 years older than you, so I actually watched that show in real time when it came out. The world was enamored with Angie Dickinson. It was the first time there was a drama series focusing solely on a woman. She was over 40. She was not dead gorgeous, but she was also over 40. I think a friend of yours saw you in a baby blue three-piece suit and said, you're channeling your policewoman today. And that's how the name stuck. That's right. I was blonde <laughs> and I had a polyester three-piece suit on. And yeah, Ruben, my my very close still friend Ruben said, Joan, you're channeling Angie from Policewoman. And I was like, that's the name. Yeah. She was really one of the sexiest women of that time. Yeah. I was I was 13 when that show came out. So I was obsessed. Of course. Obsessed. Initially, Jonah's Policewoman started as a duo with Ben Porowski on drums, and eventually you added the great, great Rainy Orteca on bass. Um, just as a sidebar, Rainy helped create the sound studio that we are sitting in. I adore Rainy. She is also a genius. She sure is. And um, just, hey, Rainy, in case you're listening, we're here with a thread between us. That's you. Um, In 2006, you released Real Life. It was released to great fanfare, great reviews. What was it like to be suddenly be the center of attention with so much adulation? Really strange because I knew that my family and my friends would hear the record. And that was like plenty You know, I just thought, I have to do this, but I did not have any expectations. I made a pact with myself that I would, okay, I'm doing my own music. I'm going to do it exactly how I want, which somewhere that meant no one was going to listen to it, Mm. you know? Yeah, I read that you were surprised that people liked it. Yeah, I was. And it made me feel less alone that people liked it. It was a really cool feeling. I was like, oh, people can relate to this? I'm so glad, you know? It was a very different feeling than I would have imagined. I wasn't expecting it. That's it. I was not expecting it. It's a great album. I'm wondering if you can play a song from oh my that God, album right, for us. playing a song. I forgot. I mean, we're both sitting here barefoot. It's so much fun to be able to do that with a guest. All right. This is a song called We Don't Own It, and I wrote it for Elliot Smith. Oh, wow. Elliot opened a whole tour for us. I mean, he was living in New York, so I knew him from just music, but he sat on a stool with his acoustic guitar and played often with a lot of people in the crowd talking over him. This was before that Goodwill, whatever it's called, came out, and he became more of a household name. You know, he he is an incredibly shy person and very introverted. And, you know, I think everybody knew he had tried to kill himself a bunch of times. Like, that was sort of common knowledge then when he finally succeeded, ugh, the just what happened, the aftermath of that was so 
disturbing mm-hmm. that I wrote this song uh, and just sort of in light of that situation. So let's see if I can do this. cuts his eyes looks away from the door that walked in you you will know it will go down in history how sweet he was to you and all the So hand it over Cause we don't own it It's in the mystery The silent fantasy Cause I know you Could ever know what it's like 
you've since recorded nine studio albums, two albums of cover songs, a few live albums. Your covers are so unique. You you have a way of remaking songs, sort of the way I think Alan Cumming remade Joel Gray's role in, of the MC in Cabaret. Wow. You know, you there, there was it's so you know with Funny Girl being out now too. You know, people are saying there's just no way for anybody to sort of take a part that Barbra Streisand made famous and make it their own. But people said that about Joel Gray's part in um, Cabaret, and then Alan came, uh, Alan Cumming came and did it in a in a whole new way that makes you rethink everything you thought you knew. And that's the way I feel about your covers. You remake these songs in a way that makes you feel like that's the way they should have done been done to begin with. Your cover of Prince's Kiss is astonishing. And, you know, Prince, you think, how, how can anybody outdo Prince's own song? But yet you do it. How do you pick your songs to cover? Why are you laughing? <laughs> because it's, that's crazy. I Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, how do I pick the songs? I mean, I I pick songs I'm infatuated with. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. They don't always work because I have to convince myself I've found a new way into the song or I've found some sort of new facet to show the world. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, I re- I love that song, Kiss. Who doesn't? Yeah. It's so good. And I was determined to figure out some other way through it. And, you know, I love Nina Simone. And mm. she does this. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to um, honor her, uh, you know, example of finding new ways through songs. Joan, I'd love before you go if you could do another song for us. Any song at all from your catalog, your beautiful catalog. And if you can just pick a song and, and tell us the backstory. Okay, well. Uh, this is a song called Forever in a Year. And it is from the record called The Deep Field. 2011. Yes. The song pretty much tells itself. Let's see if I can, if I can tell it. (laughs) (laughs) I found my dream. But it's not you You're my fantasy I've always known I would die alone So here I go I'd like to stay
dream, the dream that feels like you romancing me. it through that song. <laughs> that was perfection. You okay? Yeah, it's really hard for me not to cry during that song. <laughs> it's hard not to cry through most of your songs in the best possible way. Um, here, here, we have tissues. I, I'm all right. You good? Yeah, it's okay. fine. <laughs> Joan Wasser. Thank you so much for making so much stunning music that truly matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Joan, 
as Joan, as policewoman, is about to go on tour. Mm -hmm. She's going on a lengthy tour to Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Italy, Switzerland, the UK. And songs from The Solution is Restless will feature prominently as well as other songs from her catalog. You can find out lots more about Joan on her website, joanaspolicewoman.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.